As we look to God's Word this morning, if you'd uh, like to take your Bible first to a New Testament passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, I'd like to read uh, a few words from the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as we look to God's word this morning. Our Father, this is why we come to lift up the name of our God, the name of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask that you would bless us as we approach your word this morning and uh, encourage us by it and teach us, motivate us to love you, to serve you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I was with you uh, last week and we looked at uh, this whole idea of learning about God and I used the image of going back to school and we went back to Athens where the philosophers lived and uh, taught and surmised and Paul went there and took the Athenian philosophers to kindergarten. I want to talk to you about theos. Uh, We say the word God often. What do we mean when we say that? We had a missionary in our presbytery in New York and New England who came back from Europe, uh, and uh, he was giving his uh, report to the presbytery, and he's saying that he was working among students in Germany. And he walked up to a student in Germany and said, uh, I want to tell you about Jesus. And uh, the young man said, what is a Jesus? No concept of the things that we talk about. Even in this country, you can no longer assume that the people you talk with in your offices, neighborhoods, buildings, or whatever, know what you're talking about when you use the word God. We hear it all the time. We hear it in all kinds of context. God bless you, right? Yeah, that was fake. Oh my God, says the seven-year-old little girl who's watching the latest Disney movie or whatever. In God, we trust. Says that on our money. What does that mean? God bless America. Now they sing that instead of the Stars Bangled Banana, uh, uh, Banner, Stars Bangled Banner at ball games. 
instead of even take me out to the ball game. What do we mean? Oh, we could go out here on the street, stop the next hundred cars that go by, and ask them, couldn't we? What is God? And I'm sure that 95% of them would tell you the answer. God, number four in the Shorter Catechism, is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what they would say out there, wouldn't they? Nah, not really. Other religions have their definitions. The ancient Chinese Taoism. I have to read this. God, the subtle essence of the universe is elusive and evasive. It is the subtle origin of the whole creation and non-creation. It existed prior to the beginning of time as the deep and subtle reality of the universe. It brings all into being. Well, you know, there's some common grace there, isn't there? One of the sects of Islam says God is the indescribable, uncreated, self-existent, eternal, all-knowing source of all reality and being. Again, not too bad. Not the shorter catechism, but not too bad. We're Christians. We live in a different sphere. We're not allowed to sit down in our studies and our basement and write out our own definition of God. We live in that sphere where we're subject to the revelation of God as he gives it to us, certainly in creation, but primarily in the Bible. And so when we go to the Bible, we look to be taught what is God, how does God work, how does God function among us. And last week, we looked at the memorial name of God, which we uh, commonly know as Jehovah or the Lord or Yahweh, that name that he wants his people to know and remember him by because he is the covenant-keeping God. Before Exodus 3, Moses knew other words, other names of God. The common, most common Middle Eastern name was just El. And whenever you see an L on the name of, uh, or at the end of a word that you might find in uh, Scripture, like Emmanuel, Emmanuel, it means God with us. And uh, so that was known. He is the God who is the, the authority. He is the ruler. God is Elohim. That's the word that's used at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, for the creator of all things. And God is Adonai, he is the Lord of all. And we could do a study of all of those. God revealed himself prior to that, however, to a man called Abraham. And today I want to look at that passage just a little bit with you. It's found in the 17th chapter of Genesis. Uh, you're familiar with this uh this story, but let me read it to you again from Genesis chapter 17, the first eight verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, 
Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, you have to remember, first of all, that God is coming to Abraham in a particular context, in a particular historical context. We have to think about this man, Abraham. He's important in the Bible for several reasons. Number one, Abraham is the picture, first of all, of the biblical truth of God's sovereign election of people. I'm not going to go into the doctrine of election, but you know that up until this time, for the most part, God had dealt with uh, humanity as a whole in creation, in redemption, and even in providence. Yes, there was that particularization of Noah, and but after that, even God had dealt with the multitudes of the nations. But the speaking work of God, the saving work of God, beginning with this man Abram, is going to be confined now to one family of people. It is going to be exclusive. This man Abram is going to represent God's work among a peculiar, particular group of people. Yes, it's in one way it's narrowly defined, But even as God came to Abraham in the first sages, he said, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Guess what's that? What that is a view of, something that's going to come far down the line. But yes, Abraham is a peculiar, but yet through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the Bible, Abraham furthermore furthermore, is the supreme example of faith. Now, it's certainly true that before Abram, before Abraham was, there were men and women who acted in faith. But beginning with Abraham, or in the life of Abraham, you have a consistent representation of man from the time that God called him to move out of his home base in Ur of the Chaldees to Mesopotamia and then down into Canaan, you have this man who obeyed God. From the time he left Ur to the time he he was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac, here was a man who trusted God. One example after another of a man of faith. And the scripture picks that up in the New Testament as well. 
And then if you combine both of those things, the election of God and the man of faith, what you have in the scripture is Abraham given to us as a picture of that tree or that root from which all of the rest of God's people through all of the ages is going to come. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul very clearly implies that Abraham serves as the root of the tree into which all of God's people are going to be engrafted. You, as believing Christians, are children of Abraham. Remember that song? Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. And you are one of them, and so am I. So let's just praise the Lord. Right. We are children of Abraham. Now, with that really brief background of the importance of Abraham, we come back here to Genesis chapter 17. And we find that this is a very interesting set of circumstances. At the age of 75, several chapters earlier in Genesis, God had come to Abraham uh, the first time, and he had made him a promise in chapter 12. The promise is made without really any reference to a covenant, and yet now 10 years, a few years later, 15 years later, uh, again, God comes to him in this dramatic expression of a covenant promise. What is a covenant? Well, the simplest expression of covenant is what the children's catechism, I mentioned that last week, a covenant is an agreement between two or more people. We have the idea, however, and it's a wrong idea, by the way, that uh, this covenant was something that Abraham and God sat down at a table or across the table from each other and said, okay, let's work this thing out. You'll do some things, I'll do some things, you make some promises, I make some promises. That's not what a biblical covenant is. A biblical covenant is God coming to Abraham, or to Abram in this case, God coming to Abram and says, this is the way it's going to be. This is what you're going to do, but also this is what I'm going to do, right? And so this agreement that God comes to Abraham and says, I'm making my covenant. The biblical covenant is unilateral, one one coming to the other. And so uh, God comes to Abraham and gives him this promise that he is what, what he is going to do, but he also gives to Abraham in the covenant the assurance of the fulfillment of his promise. Not only am I going to promise, but I promise that I'm going to do it, Abraham. Now... I'll not go through all of the terms of God's covenant with Abraham. That's not the point this morning. But he placed obligations on Abram. He told Abram that he was to do certain things. But here's the question that faces this fellow Abram. What did it say at the beginning? When Abram was 99 years old. He's 99 years old. What's the question? How in the world is God going to fulfill the promises that he has made to me? 
Abraham has a good understanding of what, what God intended to do, but how, how is God going to bring it about? How is it going to be accomplished? We're told, in a, as a matter of fact, that earlier in chapter 16, Abraham got a good idea. I know how we'll do this. My wife, well, she can't be a member of Sterling Orthodox Presbyterian Church and get pregnant. Uh, so I'll get my, my servants, my servant to be, well, how'd that work out? Not real well, not real well. And so in that context, now here in chapter 17, God comes to Abraham again. And this time, and to my point, God comes to Abraham and reveals a name to him. Here's my name. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Ani El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Here's the first of the names of God that we've talked about that has this word El uh, associated with a, uh, an adjective or a description of what God is like. El is just the overpower, the original power of the universe, the sovereign one. But Shaddai is an adjective, or it's a descriptive word. And uh, there's a discussion about the the, uh, origin of this word, but essentially it means sufficient, the sufficient one. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, Shaddai means God is enough. If you can remember anything this morning, remember that. El Shaddai means God is enough. You look at another passage of scripture, I'll just mention it to you. Over in, over in Job chapter 40, uh, Job has this idea that he's going to have a conversation with Shaddai. And Job has some questions about God that he's going to ask. And so he's going to muster himself uh, up and he's, you ever get that feeling that that's what you'd like? Boy, I'd like to have, I'd sure like to have a conversation with God. Because I would sure ask him some questions about how things are going on around here. That's Job's attitude as he comes. First, God says, okay, Job, let me ask you a couple of questions. And then there's a series of questions that Job gets asked. And I won't, you can go back to chapter 40 and following. By the time you get to chapter 41, Job is utterly convinced that no mortal, no man, is ready to wrestle with someone whose name is Shaddai. In chapter 42 and verse 6, he concludes that the best action that he can take is simply to bow his head and repent of himself and who he is and what he is. For the man Abram, God comes in this revelation, not as the supreme one of the universe, in creation or even providence, but the one who alone is able to take every covenant promise and make it a reality in the life of this man. The covenant 
God had installed it in chapter 12. And again here in verse 2. There is a covenant between me and you. Verse 8. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. But the question still remains. How? How? And that answer can be fulfilled only by one word. It has to be a miracle. It has to be an action of God outside the realm of normal human possibility. And the revelation to Abraham right here is this. The God who speaks to you right now is the God who is able to take care of that. Whatever that is. Nothing, no one can thwart the plans, the purposes of a God whose name is El Shaddai. He is enough. Now, that's the revelation that comes to Abraham. And what we find is that God expects from Abram a response. Each time God reveals himself to us, he is calling upon us to respond in some way. God's revelation always brings out his wonderful attributes. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the first response, in keeping with all the things that God has promised, is to praise him. Where did we begin our worship this morning. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And then we stood and we sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Didn't we? That's the proper response to God and his revelation. But there's more than just praise. For the revelation of God that he gives to us, we're reminded of a couple of things about God. Furthermore, first, that God is indeed the God who makes and keeps the covenant promises. But also, because God is El Shaddai, we know that his desire and his purpose for us is that we be fruitful and faithful. And so God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am El Shaddai. Now, because of that, What? Walk before me and be blameless. That's a challenge too. There's a heart change that needs to take place when you understand who God is and what God is doing. Abraham fell on his face before God. So what happened here was not just some incidental response to God. But Abraham's whole, Abram's whole perspective on life chain. El Shaddai, yes, he's enough. And I must see to it that my heart changes with respect to all that I formerly held to be valuable and important. How does that happen? That too is the work of God by his spirit. It's called faith, isn't it? And faith in the scripture takes 
place in two ways. First, it's a faith that justifies, what we call justification. In Romans 4, in Galatians 3, Paul picks up the whole content of Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And Paul says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, as directly applied to the doctrine of justification by faith. That truth is that by the act of declaration, not because of something that Abraham did, but by the act of God's declaration, the righteousness of another was put to the account of the believer. And that's what justification is all about. It is only by putting a new record in place for the believer that God can cancel the debt and the guilt of the sinner. And yet, it is not the work of the sinner. It is always just the work of God. God, by his decree, changes the state of the heart right before him. Abraham believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Once a sinner, dead in guilt, but now, who can lay any charge against Abram? He believed. God counted it to him as righteous. What does it take? What does it take for a sinner like you and like me to be right with God? It takes El Shaddai. It takes the God who is almighty. But it's not just a faith of justification. There's more. That faith that justifies is also a faith that sanctifies. Holiness is the ultimate purpose that God has for us as his people. God-centered blamelessness. Living an open, pure life before God. Well, if you're not thinking to yourself right now, well, that's a fine predicament to put me in, preacher. You're not listening. God, God wants you and I to be holy. Are you, are you getting a good grip on that this week? No. No. But God is working in us according to his good pleasure. Living a life. Why is that? Why do we do that? Because God's enough. God's enough for us. And it's the life that we share. We share together as a body of people. It's a life that we live as a kingdom of people before God. Soften the fact that the people of God are willing to think that, well, maybe we just need to get a little bit of the world. Just, just enough to make ourselves acceptable or something like that. But the perspective from history of God's people is that God's always enough for his people. The psalmist says it this way. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from, listen now, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. You see, the scripture gets to us because these are the things the scripture speaks to about us that makes us, that make us uptight. It's shelter. It's provision. It's security. It's protection from our enemies. It's the traps of the evil one. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with illness. We're dealing with death. Someone to take up our cause against that one who accuses us day and night. Yeah. All of that represents the real need that we have on a daily basis. The thing that threats us, that threatens us, from the dread of other people, from the uncertainties of our frail bodies, the troubles of our relationships, spiritual warfare with temptations and trials, emotional onslaughts, feeling worthless, rejected, unloved, ridiculed. How does a person handle that? How does a person handle life in that capacity? Well, when you know that El Shaddai is with you, when you know that God Almighty is with you, you face it in trust, in hope, in confidence, and in joy. Ephesians 5, now to him, now Ephesians 3 that we read, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Philippians 4 that I read earlier. How does Paul conclude it all? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And why is that true? Why is that true? Because Jesus is the great fulfillment of that characteristic of God that was declared to Abraham 
thousands and thousands of years ago. Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's the one who perfectly kept the covenant for me. He's the one who meets my every need. He's the one who gives me strength to bear fruit unto his glory. As the shepherd of his sheep, as the one who leads his holy people. Jesus is enough. Is he for you? Is he for you? If not, the call of this God to you is for you to repent of your stubbornness before him and submit to his grace and come to him, confessing what you are and what you need and knowing that in Christ Jesus you will find that he is enough. If Jesus is enough, if God is enough and you know it, well, rejoice, be calm, be hopeful in your God, be expectant of the covenant-making promises of God, but also the covenant-keeping promises of God. If God is enough, be energetic, be active, be joyful to see Him producing fruit in your life. One of the things that bothers me about the new Trinity hymnals that left some hymns out. And there's a great hymn. You know, uh, other churches, uh, they say, let's stand and sing, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. Uh, what do they call it? Seven, seven, eleven. Seven words, eleven repetitions. Here's a hymn that tells you why you love Jesus. Thou hidden source of calm repose, thou all, su- listen to, Jesus is enough. Thou, all-sufficient love divine, my help and refuge from my foes, secure I am if thou art mine. And so from sin and grief and shame, I hide thee, Jesus, in thy name. Thy mighty name salvation is and keeps my happy soul above. Comfort it brings and power and peace and joy and everlasting love to me. With thy dear name are given pardon and holiness and heaven. Jesus, my all in all thou art, my rest in toil, my ease in pain, the medicine of a broken heart, in war my peace, in loss my gain, my smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame my glory and my crown, in want my plentiful supply, In weakness, my almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty. My light in Satan's darkest hour. My help and stay. Where'er I call, my life and death. My heaven, my all. God is El Shaddai. We worship him because he is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are enough. We try to cling to the world and hope that it satisfies, but it never does. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we contemplate and think on these things. And even as we approach your table now, cause us to see that what Jesus did 
is enough for us. For he is the one that gives us peace before you. We pray in his name. Amen.